Welcome to Look-See, the podcast for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. The exhibition Great Force, currently on view at the Institute for Contemporary Art at Virginia Commonwealth University, addresses the force of whiteness, the counterforce of black resistance, and the persistence of the color line in the United States. With new commissions and recent work by 24 artists, the exhibition presents painting, sculpture, photography, video, and performance that examine race in the United States. This deeply affecting show raises such critical ideas about race and racism in America that I felt it was important to share the ICA's own description of it here. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, the term the color line was used to describe racial division and oppression. The color line describes this boundary, built by racism and protected by pseudoscience, the criminal code, segregation, and violence. Throughout this exhibition, the color line provides us with a historical, conceptual, and visual boundary to push against America's dominant narratives. Additionally, 2019 marked the 400th anniversary of the first recorded arrival of enslaved Africans to Hampton, Virginia in 1619. Richmond, where the ICA is located and this exhibition is currently on view, was the site of one of the largest slave auction markets in the United States and continues to be haunted by that fact. This city was also the capital of the Confederate States of America, which fought the United States to defend slavery. Monuments to the Confederacy still surround us. These realities allow for this place to become a focus for critical conversations around race relations. The works included in Great Force foreground acts of resistance rather than offering explicit images of pain and subjugation or white domination. The artists in the exhibition push back on the demand that artists of color perform and educate. Instead, these artists and literary thinkers show us that culture is always in communication with both past and present, often driven by a desire for change and revision. To bring about this change, we all have to set aside racial binaries and dismantle the structural supremacy that whiteness has constructed for itself, a supremacy so interwoven into our society that it often goes unseen by many of us. Great Force aims to help us reimagine and reorganize American identity together. I had the opportunity to talk with the curator of Great Force, Amber Seva, about the show, its artists, and works of art. I'm here today at the ICA at VCU with Amber Seva, the associate curator at the ICA. And Amber is the curator for the current exhibition at the ICA, the current main exhibition at the ICA, Great Force. Amber, I wanted to start out talking today about where the title of the exhibition came from. So can you tell us what the inspiration was for that? Yes. So the title of the exhibition, and I would say safely, maybe like 60% of the inspiration in the works of art come from James Baldwin. It comes from a quote that he published in 1965 in Ebony Magazine in an essay called The White Man's Guilt. The full quote is, history, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, The great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. 
What about that quote and about James Baldwin's work in general resonated with you Mm -hmm. and became the foundation for the idea for this exhibition? Well, James Baldwin is profound in a lot of ways, but primarily he had a really profound way of writing and writing accessibly and then also writing beautifully about race relations in America. Um, He spent a lot of time in Europe and so then developed a certain perspective on race relationships in America that made it distinct. And he created a language that to articulate how distinct those relations are that I think were really, really powerful. The quote or, you know, this particular quote came out of very integral time in his life, uh, 1965, after his close friend Malcolm X died, really the basis of his documentary, I'm Not Your Negro, came from this idea that, you know, despite the really important work that Malcolm and many others and MLK later who would be assassinated were doing and the progress and mobility that they were engendering in black Americans, there was this kind of great force of history that would come back, right? This fear and this hate that would lead into would lead to their death. And so, you know, he's writing from the perspective of the 60s, you know, this black power movement era in which there was a kind of resurgence and resilience in the black American community, but yet there was still this ideology of around fear and hate that that wanted individuals that were fighting for progress to die. You know, so the kind of way that he was writing around great force at a time when that force kind of came around the corner to um, become the demise of his friends and his colleagues was really important. Uh, And he had, again, a way of writing about this from a deeply personal lens right, like watching his friends be assassinated, and also a very, not universal, but global way, because he was writing this from France at the time and seeing kind of, you know, how he was treated as a black man in France versus what was going on to his colleagues here in America. So here we are 50 years later, and the title of this exhibition is Great Force. Mm -hmm. And this quote from James Baldwin from the 1960s that was responding to events at that time Mm -hmm. is still powerful and resonant in this time and place and to you and to the artists whose work is shown in this exhibition and to many, many other people Mm -hmm. that are um, artists, activists, citizens, you know, everyone living today. So can you kind of bring us up to now with, you know, your own experience and, and what um, and how you that led you to the artists that you chose for the exhibition. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, going back to the quote to say that I think, sadly, this quote will continue to be relevant for a really long time. It's kind of analogy to this kind of notion of the cyclical nature of history and how things come back and recreate themselves. And with this particular case, it's, it's um, racism or racial bias in the United States. And so for me, and I think for a lot of the artists in the show, this conversation was really being thought about in a time where artists and curators and really people of color are getting a lot of visibility in in, in a lot of ways, but particularly within culture. I mean, they've, they've always been pretty visible within culture and in entertainment. Uh, but now there is, you know, room being made within institutions, within schools, within other industries where people of color are actually having seats at the table and not just performing, right? And so with this prosperity and these opportunities that get opened up for people of color within the arts, there is still 
this force, you know, quote unquote Baldwin-esque force that might be considered to be following us. And this is around what it is that institutions or um, universities or whatever the industry is might want black people to do and or perform when they put themselves in positions of power or positions of, with access that they didn't have before. And those might be around educating everyone else that they might work with or the public or students about black experience. And so what does that mean for one person to then do the work of an entire demographic? Why? You know, why does that responsibility still fall on the side of scholars, curators, artists, people? And in what ways does that perpetuate this kind of prejudice and biases? Of course, I think that this is a time where people are seemingly trying to correct history. But in correcting history, I think oftentimes there's a demand for the people that have been disenfranchised in history to do a lot of the correcting, you know, either through filling seats or doing, you know, um, having an exhibition or things like that. So a lot of the artists in the show are thinking like, okay, within this moment of prosperity or this moment of um, visibility culturally, what is it that I have the power to control? You know, and that's the visuality of their work, right? So I can control what it is that I tend to present in my work and the subject matter. So a lot of the artists in the show don't show images of slavery. They don't show images of quote unquote white power per se. They don't show images of black bodies bodies uh, being subjected to those terrors that we know in history. So there will be events that are quoted throughout the show in reference. So Montgomery, the L.A. riots, prison industrial complex, but you won't see bodies rioting. You won't see handcuffs or chains and prison uniforms and things like that. Um, so there is an active moving away from the, the image that is and the ideas that self-perpetuate disenfranchisement while still speaking about those histories and, and understanding and honoring those histories. I think that's a good entry point to talk specifically about some of the work mm-hmm. in the show. And so how many artists are included in the show? It's 21 visual artists in the exhibition, um, but with the performances and the artists that are a part of the Racial Imaginary Collective's room, it's 24. Some of those artists are, I wouldn't say emerging artists, but young, newer artists, and some are very established at the forefront of the contemporary art movement into this space Mm -hmm. many years ago. But yet many of those artists, if not all of them, are probably new to many of the people who are coming into the exhibition, even if they've been working for many years on these issues, partly because of what you have just described of these, you know, the opportunities becoming available and people being interested in, mm-hmm. in seeing this work and, and learning more about it. So it's quite a wide range. And there are some pieces that have, you know, been created in the past. There's some that are new. There's some that are commissioned for this mm-hmm. show. So it's, it's an incredibly wide range. Why don't we start by drawing some connections between some of the artists in the show and ways in which their work Mm -hmm. riffs off of each other Mm -hmm. and is influenced by the other's work. So the first thing that you encounter when you walk through the show, I mean, if you walk through the show in the kind of order that one usually does, which is in gallery one, you walk through a piece by Sable Elise Smith, a large blue archway. This is a piece that is made up of prison visitation tables that then form an arch that you can walk through. For me, that being the first piece that you encounter, and then also being the first piece that you were allowed to walk through, was really important because these materials otherwise, you know, these kind of cold steel materials are meant to separate 
the imprisoned and the visitor so that touch is restricted and movement is surveyed. So to have that object then become this sort of portal or this doorway in which you go through the whole exhibition that allows movement, which is the opposite of what it is designed to do, restrict movement, was really important. And then what you had mentioned about the artist and the different kind of generations that these artists were speaking from, there are three artists that are responding from a series of works that they did in the 90s. And for me, bringing in the 90s was really important, thinking about the 90s as this kind of multi-culti, united colored of Benetton, diversity-obsessed kind of era. However, diversity in that era was very much a branding device and less a seat at the table like it might be today. It wasn't really trying to restructure power. It was just trying to have inclusive images, right? Sell stuff. Sell stuff, too. Yeah, exactly. So to to go past Sable's work, you then are encountered by a second series that Sable has created, and there are these coloring book series. So these coloring books that are inspired by these books that are made to um, teach children how to navigate the court system, judges, and those kinds of environments. Um, Across from a work by Carrie Mae Weems, who is one of those very established artists from the 90s called Untitled Color People Grid, which is a series of portraits of teens and adolescents kind of dispersed among colored grids of inkjet prints. And so Sable's work, really talking about the way in which the prison industrial complex affects children by demolishing families and by controlling their lives and futures, Carrie Mae Weems is really thinking about the ways in which terms like colored, African-American, Negro, for this specific piece of the term is colored, really affects children, primarily children of color at such an early age, forcing them to contend with race in a way that other children don't have to do. So it's two artworks thinking about the experience of race, structural racism on children, but through two different lens, one through painting and drawing, the other through photography, one through the prison industrial complex, and the other through language. And when you say that this archway is large, I would say that it was monumental scale. And Sable Elise Smith is an artist who's worked in Richmond Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. and who is teaching Mm -hmm. here now. Was that a recent piece or is that a piece that is in response to in any way the sort of monumentization Mm. of whiteness or? Um, I think that, you know, it definitely has reverberated some of those ideas. But for I think for the piece, it's not a a totally new piece. Um, She started doing these works about three years ago, um, roughly. And it was really exploring the nearly two decades of experience that she had visiting her incarcerated father. And so those materials are really important to uh, an engagement that she had at an early age that then became involved a lot of her practice in a series of sculptures and drawings. But the scale is always larger than life per se when you combine the components. And for Sable, yes, in part it's talking about monumentality when when it's in a Richmond context, but I think for her it's a way of conveying the dominance and the the sheer numbers that is the prison industrial complex in the United States. We are the largest and have the largest incarceration rate and have for a really long time. And it's going up because of private prisons. So that kind of for-profit rise in incarceration is then represented in her work through scale. And monumentality does that for different reasons, right? It's a scale to show the good deeds of someone, which is not always true, right? This is a scale to show the kind of crimes and the humanitarian issues that we have as a country. I was unaware until recently the 
intentionality of the mm-hmm. creation of the prison system in the South post-Civil War and, and Reconstruction, I really just was not aware of mm-hmm. that intentionality. I was aware of the effect, mm-hmm. but not that it was purposeful. Right. And so I think about the purposes of the Confederate monuments in sending a message mm-hmm. to the people who were walking by them, reminding mm-hmm. them of their version of mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. And I, when I saw this piece of Sable Elise Smith's, I thought, Similarly, about this piece reminding people of that newly uncovered, for many people, mm-hmm. history of prisons and specifically prisons and prisons effect and intentional effect on black people in the South. Mm-hmm. And then it spread mm-hmm. throughout the country. I mean, I think for that particular piece and I think for a lot, a lot of the work in the show, it's about this balance of engaging with troubled histories and traumas and those realities, but also figuring out a way that materially we can kind of detour away from them, walk through them, and not have to maybe carry those traumas in the way that we understand it, right, or the way that we've lived it. And I think for Sable and that work, like, of course, that reality is real for a large portion of her life. And I think there's a poetry in creating this object that then you can walk through and walk away from, always suggesting that, yes, this is um, um, an experience that made up my early childhood, but it no longer defines me. You know, so I think that that is really coming to bear in this sculpture and the way that it's set up and the way that it confronts you in the entrance, the way that you can walk through. It's the first thing you see, but it's kind of the last thing you forget, you know, because it's so monumental when you encounter it so abruptly. It's very solidly a thing, Mm -hmm. but also you don't necessarily read exactly what it is Mm -hmm. when you first enter the gallery. But then once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's a really beautiful kind of play on this notion of the histories of racism in the United States and this notion of visibility and invisibility, right? Like, whereas if you see images of incarcerated people in jumpsuits with chains, you see it and then you almost want to forget it, you know? You know that it exists and you know that it's a kind of very standardized visual atmosphere in so many correctional facilities, which are all over the place in the United States. But yet, you know, we might watch it on a documentary or we might see it in real life. And then we go on into our our, our other lives and we choose to forget it. And she's kind of approaching it from the other end, right? Like you see something that think otherwise like people are like oh it's picnic tables oh it's so on and so forth or I didn't even know it was a table it's just an arch and then you realize what it is and then you can't unsee it so it's a way of like reminding people of histories and recalling those histories without having to recall the images the traumatic images or the usual images that are allow us to forget these horrors. So same for a work like Popel, which is a work that's on the other side of Carrie Mae Weems that faces the street side of the ICA. You can see it through the window. And it's Popel dressed in a Superman costume, crawling on his hands and knees in a kind of agonizing endurance performance across New York City's Broadway. You know, once you learn about the piece and you learn that his kind of um, relationship to crawling is a relationship to this idea of homelessness in the United States as something that we're so used to ignoring. You know, you walk through New York, you walk through L.A., you walk through any city, Richmond, and you ignore people talking to you. You ignore the sight of people living in this way, dispossessed, you know. But in that piece, 
you see Pope Bell doing it and you see it in a Superman costume and you see that the meaning of a Superman costume with an endurance crawl, it then makes you re-engage with the ignorable factors in our environment that we prior were maybe we're not paying attention to through a work of art that makes you look at it differently, you know? And that piece, the Pope L piece, is a video piece mm-hmm. that is a portion, I would assume, mm-hmm. a segment. Segment one of five segments of him crawling across Broadway, starting at the Statue of Liberty and ending at the Bronx for nine years. And so this was the first film segment. So you see him crawling from the Statue of Liberty, getting on the ferry, going into the city that he started in the 90s. It's very resting. I mean, it catches your attention to, to see this video and you immediately are engaged in like what is this person doing Mm -hmm. because he's dressed in a superhero costume and has a skateboard tied on his back Mm -hmm. which he uses sometimes to rest from Mm -hmm. the crawling but still it's not much of a rest but the part about it to me that has stuck with me after I saw it was the way that other people are looking at him or not looking at him Mm -hmm. and I think you know it's in New York City and so people are used to seeing weird stuff right so he gets a different reaction than he might have get somewhere right, else. Right. But it's just people really just want to just not see him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, you know, is really important to his work. There is one really iconic moment in one of his crawls in the 70s when he was doing the Thompson Square crawl, which is him doing a similar crawl, but he's crawling from gutters in a suit with a uh, with a flat with flowers in his hands. Um, so kind of like a dispossessed businessman, right? And in one of these crawls, a black man goes up to him and asks, "Are you okay?" You know, and then he turns to see the camera and the white cameraman and is like so enraged that he would pervert the image of blackness despite how far it had come, quote unquote, in his mind uh, through this silly exercise. And he was, at first it started with wanting to help him and then he realized what he was doing and felt like it was a disservice to the black image and was upset by it. But it's interesting to see that that black man becomes the most vocal response to these crawls. The other pieces in in that gallery that I'm still thinking about are the sculptural kind of block-like pieces that um, incorporate, you know, they're sculptures that incorporate cotton and do-rags and oh, yeah, one of them. Kevin Beasley. So Kevin Beasley's work mm-hmm. incorporates cotton, which mm-hmm. is... Virginia cotton, too. And he's a Virginian. Mm-hmm. And that is an image to me that is similar to seeing prisoners in chains mm-hmm. like it's so close to seeing the images of people picking cotton in the fields right. that it almost is the same thing right and so you know what how how does that kind of tie into these themes that you're exploring so i think for those two pieces for one i think that the titles like do a lot, right? One of the works is called Slab and the other one is called Emerging Building Block. And I think that for Kevin, where in like you're correct, he is from Virginia. His family has been here in Valentine's, Virginia for a really long time, working land and farming. And so this history of the enslaved plantation worker and the overseer like is very visceral and very real to him and his family and their legacy with land and farming. Yet in order to honor their contribution to the foundation of this country through cotton and various other forms of production. He's doing it in a way that takes titling, allows them to to 
take on titles of architectural, like a slab and a building block are both two things that you need in a building, or else you don't have a building and a roof, right? To think about how those history really, those um, labors really contributed to history, but without needing to recall the image of the, the enslaved person, the overseer on horseback, you know, he's doing it through a way, I mean, those sculptures to me are beautiful, you know, they're like pastel and like sumptuous and like really beautiful looking. They look like they have this almost Monet-esque vibe with the colors and the compositions, but it's not about anything of that nature. It's about slavery and cotton production. And to think, to see something so beautiful be about that is like, you know, really profound. They almost, especially slab, the one that's on Mm -hmm. the wall, that's Mm -hmm. attached to the wall, makes me think of the incredibly beautiful marbles Mm -hmm. that are used in the Vatican Mm -hmm. or in St. Peter's. Mm -hmm. Now, as we walk out of the gallery, Mm -hmm. so the next thing that you might encounter as you're going up the stairs to go to the next set of galleries is the, the wall and the text that introduces the exhibition Mm -hmm. and that the text itself, the actual lines Mm -hmm. and graphics of the text has a story. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that and W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. So another major influence in the show, aside from Baldwin, is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who in 1900 was asked to be an exhibitor at the sort of World's Fair in Paris to show a realistic representation of African-American life after emancipation. And W.E.B. Du Bois Mm -hmm. was very important, I would say, philosopher, Yeah, really, a thought person um, who was very influential, you know, was one of the most influential thinkers around race and mm-hmm. race relations mid to eight, like mid 1800s to mid 1900s, influenced Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and Malcolm X mm-hmm. and was a big part of the thinking behind the uh, Brown versus Board of Education mm-hmm. lawsuits. And, you know, a bit, he's a very, a giant yeah. in, in this space. Absolutely, he is. And I think that that's kind of part of the reason why he was asked to be the face of an exhibit about black American life in Paris. And when he did that, he made, you know, together with little means and no support and a very short timeline, him and a group of students from Georgia went through census documents and other kind of sociological documents in Georgia. So the pro- the majority of the um, representation around you know, like literacy and illiteracy, birth and death rates and income levels that are all represented in these beautifully hand-drawn I think they're paintings, but they were charts, are really embedded in the American South. And for me, I thought it was really important to show how someone so early on in 1900 decided to show a realistic picture of African-American life in the United States, despite so many preconceived notions of what that might be after emancipation. And the title wall really is thinking about is taking inspiration from a chart that he did around illiteracy. So this understanding that, you know, because African-Americans were not allowed to read or to be literate, that everyone was illiterate after slavery, which wasn't true because they were resilient and they figured out how to teach themselves. And it showed a realistic um, picture of the illiteracy rate to combat a stereotype about illiteracy. Of course, there was illiteracy, but it wasn't as profound as I think most people thought. 
And so using that as the basis of our title wall, also our table of contents in the book, becomes a way of kind of turning this notion of illiteracy on its head to show you how many people were actually reading history in quite literate ways through literature and through language, which is really important in this show. And there was a new typeface created, Yes, right? Yes. So we worked with a a design firm called Polymode to figure out how to extend the life of the Du Bois charts, so the lines or the graphs and those kind of very distinct graphic and color palettes. But then we also worked with a pretty genius typeface designer named Trey Seals, who runs a typeface foundry called Vocal Type. And he makes type inspired by important African-American, not only African-American, he also does women's rights advocates to create a font identity that incorporates their their struggle and their history. So he developed a font called William that is looking at the very particularly hand-drawn typography that he hand-drew on these charts and continuing this language to make a typeface for the exhibition and for the catalog that we used throughout. The exhibition continues in the two galleries upstairs on the second floor of the ICA, and there are many pieces that that really burrow in and make you think. But the two that really stuck with me, there's a piece by Radcliffe Bailey that is beautiful and I think my favorite work that I've ever seen of his. Mm. And then this piece by Robert Pruitt that is very puzzling when yeah. you walk into the yeah. gallery. So I'd love to, to talk about each of those and, and why you chose those yeah. for the show happy to. So those two works that you're describing are kind of in the last gallery of the exhibition, Gallery 3, which is pretty black and white in its composition. It's much more somber than the other galleries that really deal with color and scale and moving image in a different way. And there's two pieces in particular that you mentioned, one by Robert Pruitt called Rearview Mirror and one by uh, Radcliffe Bailey called Untitled that are in the gallery that are kind of doing similar things that uh, Carrie Mae Weems and Sable Lee Smith's coloring books are doing. You know, Radcliffe Bailey is a kind of a very established, maybe older generation artist. Robert Pruitt is very much an established artist, but younger and kind of emerging, I guess you can call. And so those two pieces are really dealing with the color black and dealing with these vast fields of blackness. For Radcliffe, he's using black glitter, He's using, both of them are using two elements um, and this notion of a keyhole. So for Radcliffe, it's black glitter and a sort of keyhole cutout of an image of the ocean. That piece is following this series of work called Door of No Return, which are thinking about sites in West Africa that held enslaved Africans on the coast before they were put onto ships to go off into the transatlantic slave trade. And by combining this all black square with this small cutout of the ocean, he's recreating that room and that architecture that the, that people were held in, the last place they were held in on the continent which they were from. And he's doing it with simple materials, glitter and an image of the ocean. And so to think about the ways in which an all-blacking ex- expanse and a small keyhole image can recall such a traumatic history, it literally changed the lives of so many people, and that established the foundation of very other, a lot of other new worlds and colonies and countries, is important. And it has that element that so much of the work in the show has, which is this really deep beauty mm-hmm. that is unexpected given the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that for him, like this notion of 
the notion of glitter as a stand-in for blackness is really important. Like glitter being like, depending on how, especially black glitter, depending on how you look at it, can just look like blackness. And then there's like glimmers of shine and hope. So to think about that kind of the unexpected journey and futures that those peoples were put on to and the constant resilience to find hope and joy and love and so on and so forth in the, throughout those horrors is something that's really iconic in the use of glitter. Whereas Robert Pruitt's piece, Rearview Mirror, is similarly an all-black Conte drawing in which there is a tiny, tiny, like maybe pink, pinky fingernail scale image of the earth coming through all blackness. And this piece is a uh, life scale like, uh, like Radcliffe's, all-black a different material like Radcliffe. But this piece is different in the sense is that it recalls different histories, histories from the 60s. There's a soundtrack that is made by an artist named Jawad that is recalling this kind of P-Funkadelics, George Clinton era of black cultural resilience. And it's thinking about the ways in which Rearview Mirror, of course, recalls this reality of kind of driving while black, right? So being forward-facing in a vehicle that's taking you one way, but potentially looking in a rearview mirror that could basically suggest another reality, which is potentially death or incarceration or the end of forward-facing movement. And I think that combining that with these histories of black funkadelics, this notion of like going to outer space, um, taking the mothership to outer space to escape everyday racism, is a way of thinking of being both on Earth and also thinking about other worlds or being projected into another kind of reality and that dual nature that is so synonymous to blackness. One minute you're here and maybe one minute you're not, based on whatever your actions might be that are perceived to be incorrect or something like this. And so I think I really love the way in which a younger and an older artist are really playing with this notion of abstraction and blackness and images. Like they're using the earth and the ocean, which is like pretty mundane to a lot of people. It's just like, you know, uh, images that you can see everywhere. But combining them with blackness, it really changes the kind of definition or the, um, the associations to black American life that I think is really important. Both of them also have that element of, so your first thought is that the ocean and the earth are are beautiful mm-hmm. and comforting and familiar. and But then there's also, you know, a darker meaning to those things as well, because in Radcliffe's piece, yeah. the ocean is the thing that is going to transport you yeah. or, you know, the road that you're going on to be taken away from everything that you know. And the earth can also be a very dangerous place mm-hmm. and a place that you want to escape through Afrofuturism and fungadelics yeah, and, yeah. and spaceships. Absolutely. So, I um, think he's playing on those tensions and the difference in association for two things like that that are just so simple, like the earth and the ocean, which might mean something different if you put it within context of blackness and black composition. That's really powerful. Well, we could talk about every single piece in the exhibition. True. And Amber, how, um, when does the show, how much longer is the show up? The show is up till January the 5th, and then we'll live on through a book that we're producing that will be out around the same time. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for taking us on an audio tour through this incredible exhibition. The ICA is free and open every day except Monday. True. So come see it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Look See podcast. For more information about Great Force, go to our website, lookthensee.com. Thanks for listening and go see art.